Welcome to The Sausage Factory. This is our regular look at the world of content marketing. So we're gonna be celebrating the good and shining a light on the what could be better with the single aim of encouraging the world to make better content. So some introductions for you. I'm Matt Laybourne, I'm a performance marketer and founder of Rocky, the content feedback platform. And I'm Mark Willis, creative director, copywriter, and more recently collector of sausage related data. So together we'll be grinding the good, bad and unidentifiable into 30 minute content sausages for you every single month. You may have noticed if you already listened, we've gone up very badly and very quickly from 20 because we basically kept running over. So that's the reason we've done that. Today in the factory, we're joined by Sam Dickey, a senior product manager at Skyscanner. So Sam's journey has taken quite a path through project management and right through to lead product manager at Founder and Lightning, a London based startup studio. And there's a heavy dosage of side project built in there as well that we're looking forward to finding out about. So they include no code, Philo, beta directory and beta tester. So alongside the day job, Sam helps with a startup consultancy as well as publishing the very popular and informative Creator Club newsletter, which covers all things around startups, no code, AI, indie, hacking and more. I almost ran out of sentence there. That's, that's quite a lot. So we're going to be talking to him about his journey in product strategy and getting a few tips as well for startup founders and covering a few things around content and how that has helped on the journey as well. And of course, as is now customary, we'll be getting to share some examples of great content in Matt's bangers and the not so good in the infamous Sausage of Death. So first off, welcome to the Sausage Factory, Sam. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, guys. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Like I mentioned before, this is my first podcast. I am obsessed with podcasts. I literally have them in the shower as I'm walking around in my back pocket on loud, much to my girlfriend's dismay, walking the dog, running at literally their own constantly. So it's actually quite, quite fun to be on one and see what it's like behind the scenes. Well, there's a very gentle introduction to the podcast before we get into the blend and the serious stuff of the the interview and talking content and new products. We have the sausage quiz, which like a meaty phoenix from the flames has soared back into the hearts of our audience, having been on the verge of being canned for the last couple of episodes. So Sam, it's very simple. We have three questions for you about sausages which will give our audience unique insights into your personality and character. So are you ready to tackle some sausage-based questions? Let's do it. Cool. So first one, what's your favorite type of sausage? Well, this could be a controversial one. So, you know, true to being Scottish, it would have to be what others call the blood sausage. So it's kind of technically a sausage, I would guess. We like to call it black pudding, but I could literally have that with anything. Excellent. That's We haven't had a black pudding so far, so this is this will improve the data that we're collecting no end. Leading into the next question, favourite sausage-based dish, is that is that black pudding related? Well, no, I think I'll, I'll probably mix it up a little bit, actually. Favourite dish would probably be just a standard mash, nice rich gravy, rosemary and garlic, Cumberland sausage. I'm loving the attention to detail with that description as well, and it's just making me hungry quite frankly i haven't had my tea yet is there is there a preferred meat percentage for the sausages that you're having in delicious sounding sausage and mash that's actually quite a it's, it's a rare question to be asked um and i, I don't know what the 
I'm not entirely sure what the adequate, adequate ratio would be. I'm, I would probably say hazard a guess it's 70 30, uh, 70% meat, 30% fat. But I actually weirdly used to have a pub fact about this. Now, there was a, a percentage mm. that you had to provide of meat content in order to call it an actual sausage. I can't remember what it was, but I do remember a particular supermarket did not reach that. So they legally had to call them meat cylinders. <laughs> Fantastic. Mm, delicious meat cylinders on the barbecue. I think that's definitely the best answer we've had to preferred meat percentage so far and adding in a fun sausage meat percentage fact. I love it. So, um, Sam, that's the important sausage-centric chat out of the way. Let's get into the, the good stuff. First of all, tell us a little bit about your journey as a product manager. You know, where did you start and, and how did you get to where you are now? Yes, this is a pretty different story probably to most product managers who, you know, tend to have a either like design, computer science background. I came in actually as a, a town planner, that super glamorous job that you hear about. And turns out actually it's nothing like the game SimCity which I was led to believe when I first wanted to get into this career. It's just a bunch of people in suits sitting around and really talking a lot of bureaucracy, trying to cut through a bunch of red tape. It's not that fun. I dedicated, you know, about five, six years, not including my university, um, doing that actually in London for quite some time. And I kind of found myself just trying to build online projects, uh, the kind of evenings and weekends, just little small businesses. You know, after reading... The classic Tim Ferriss, the four work week. I think that's kind of what inspired me to try and create some sort of passive income. Um, and then I just discovered this blog post about product management and didn't realize it even existed as far as I was aware. And I took the, I think I reached out actually to the person that wrote it and asked them a bunch of questions about it. They were really nice, got back to me, trying to understand how to get into, into the industry. But to cut a long story short, I essentially obviously had no CV whatsoever to get into product management. But I guess what I did have was a few kind of side projects that I had. And kind of used that as leverage and kind of showed them it is possible for someone in my background to be able to make these products, these kind of tech-enabled products. Um, and took that to the interview and, and managed to kind of slightly hustle my way in the door for a much smaller salary at the time. Quite a bit of a risk, particularly living in London. But yeah, I managed to get my, my foot in the door, um, a kind of startup studio, which was actually Founder and Lightning, which was previously called uh, Ucreate up to a few years ago. Just continuing on from there, it just, and then started to just learn everything about product management. And um, that was like a bit of a mini MBA working for them, just exposure to a lot of different startups, different founders, trying to solve a different problem in a different vertical, at a different stage, different types of funding, extremely varied. So worked there for the best part of five years. And then decided to move on, jump on the client side, see what it was like on the other side of the fence and worked for two kind of no code uh, web app building tools. And then most recently just starting at Skyscanner. Quite, quite a journey then. Like, and you've also been doing your own things on the side as well. And I, I kind of mentioned a few of those in the intro. And tell us a little bit more about those just quick ideas that you thought you'd go and execute or, you know, what, what did that look like? It's funny, one thing about each of these side projects, the ones that I think I can make money from 
and they're more deliberate because I see that it's an opportunity to be able to actually just make some money. I've actually made no money with any of those. The ones that I just came out of, you know, a shower moment, thought it would be fun, thought no one would be interested in them whatsoever, became the ones that actually caught on. And I've been trying to unpick that for a while, right? But I think it's more just purely going in with the, the mindset of this is just a bit of fun. It's a bit of a passion project and really just trying to see what sticks. And I think like nowadays, it's never been easier to be able to create something. We're at that moment in time where really the kind of the bar of entry to be able to build any kind of like, you know, small tech product is so extremely low and the cost, you know, is, is extremely low as well. So, you know, most people can just kind of monkey about with different ideas, chuck them out there. There's a bunch of places where you could get some traffic and then just see kind of what sticks. And I think another reason for, for doing them is as a PM uh, or product manager within each of these companies, you've got a lot of constraints about what you can and can't do. I mean, you're spending their money at the end of the day, so it's understandable. But you've got all these ideas and it's a way to vent, I guess, in the evenings, weekends and just play around with these ideas that you've got. Might as well just do them yourself. It's been great fun. You've worked at and with lots of startups and you've seen many fledgling ideas come up with like ideas yourself. Can you spot the ideas that are going to make it um, and do they have things in common in your experience? Well, it's a million dollar question and I would love to say, because people are listening, you know, I'm, I'm great being able to spot fantastic startups. I don't think I'm that great at it, you know, and I think that's been probably just looking back over the years and kind of looking at these startups that I thought would do great and the ones that I thought wouldn't stand a chance. And there's been a few where... I just generally didn't see a market for it. I didn't really understand what they were trying to do. Maybe didn't necessarily see the belief in the founders. And those ones have actually done extremely well. They're, they're still sticking around. And some of the others where I thought it was a bit of an obvious win just haven't managed to, to really get much traction. So I don't think I'm terribly good at it. What I have, I guess the kind of the ways that I would try to understand or I, the ways I would figure out I've learned to figure out the, the kind of businesses that do well it typically comes down to, I guess, a lot to do with the founder, particularly in the early stages. The founder, obviously, at the later stage has less of a kind of presence in the day-to-day. -day. The early stage is where the founder is really got their sleeves rolled up. They're on the floor working with you side by side. At that point, I think it's really important that the founder is the person that obviously you, you look towards for, for quite a lot of the answers in the initial stage. It's their vision. And if they can really clearly articulate their vision, the problem they're solving, who they're solving it for, what they're going to do to get there. Like that's, that's a fantastic sign. Um, it's what we looked at, you know, with a lot of the founders that, that we would work with in the startup studio. I think, again, that the founders that can explain it really simply, you don't want to be in a 30 minute conversation, someone's trying to explain what they're trying to build. You should be able to articulate it in a couple of sentences, a paragraph. I think most of them are quite tech literate, but you don't necessarily have to be the CTO or an engineer to build, you know, really successful tech startups. I think 
Previously, I had always thought that you had to be the domain expert to have a successful business. The more that I've read, the more that I've, I've understood from a lot of successful startups that we see today. Actually, there's a great sense of naivety that founders come with, which is good, by the way, that come into a, mm. a whole new industry without domain experience because they don't see the red tape. They've got that naive kind of sense of like anything is possible where the person that spent 20 years mm. in that industry would be like, no way, you can't do it. It's impossible. And they just wouldn't even try. And they come at it from a completely different angle than someone that has been in that industry for a certain amount of time because they've almost become suppressed, I guess, or kind of made a carbon clone, you know, of every other employee within the organization. That's, that's really interesting you say that. I think like, we spoke about this ages ago, but like at, at the very beginning of the kind of the journey we took with Rocky is like, I, you know, I, the best course I found on what do you need to, you know, launch a tool or a product in the particular sector is you need domain expertise. And that was something that Y Combinator have, they've got their startup school, like that free online course, which is an incredible resource, like so much valuable information in there. But that was a big thing for them. And they kind of preached that is massive for investors as well, is, I, you know, are you the domain expert on, on X, Y or Z? So it's, I find it really interesting that you kind of have an alternate view there. And I, I think yeah. it's a really good value point. You kind of go in there without the, you're not constricted by all the blockers that you've seen if you've worked in the industry all of your life. I really like that. But there's some really obvious examples and they're kind of like, you know, right in front of us. You look at companies like Uber, Airbnb, the founders there, the founders of Airbnb, for example, they weren't part of the Hilton Hotel Group for 20 years and decided to launch Airbnb. They were like art students, <laughs> right? Same goes for Uber. Went to working in the transportation industry, you know, before that. I think he was in like finance, Wall Street. And again, like these are two very well protected kind of industries where there's only a few, you know, huge big key players in them. And they decided to kind of challenge that and disrupt it. These are the obvious ones, obviously, but I'm almost certain there's probably thousands of examples. It's fascinating because if you can't disrupt an industry if you've been living in it all your life. You kind of accept that's how things are and how things work. And you, it's very difficult to come out with a completely different opinion. It's, for kind of founders who are on that journey, what's the best thing a founder can do very early on to, if you've got that idea, regardless if you're a domain expert or not, what are the best things you can do really early doors to validate what you're about to do before you get anywhere near writing any code or, or any no code, for example? I usually like to, to split it up in between like two very distinct phases. So the first phase would be what we tend to call problem validation. And then the second phase is solution validation. So it kind of sounds exactly, you know, what it is. Essentially the kind of problem validation is ensuring you start with a problem. And the reason being actually is, as most of us do, we all come up with an idea and that idea is always a solution right to something usually we don't like stand in the shower and think about a problem all day we instantly come up with a solution <laughs> and it's just a knee-jerk reaction right it's just kind of think how we're, we're programmed i think other people are certainly more programmed to do it than others like the thing is pms are as well and that's kind of the, what we shouldn't be doing necessarily we should be understanding the problem first and then then trying to then explore a solution to that problem because there could be like you know many different infinite solutions available to that problem. Who's to say the one that you've just came up with after two seconds 
is the ideal solution to that problem. So that's why we start with problem validation, trying to understand like, right, how big is this problem? How much of a problem is this? It's just something you encounter once a month, once a year. You could still encounter it daily, but it's just not a big enough problem that you're actively looking for a solution or willing to even pay for a solution. So that's the kind of frequency side of it. But is there any other existing solutions out there to that problem? And then if there is, how well are they doing to solve that problem? And when does this problem like be encountered? Again, that's a really kind of good one to understand. Again, if the, just going back to kind of the frequency of it. So once you've understood, I guess, you've got harvested all that insight, that information, you've spoken to people that have that problem. You've got a lot of answers to those questions. You've got a nice kind of broad demographic of people that are kind of helping feed into this. Then at that point, you can then move on to the solution validation. Now, like most people don't do this and, and, and I, I totally get it because it's the seen as a kind of unglamorous, boring, unsexy part of building a startup <laughs> is like the preparative research phase. It's got a terrible name as well, you know, preparative research. Yeah. <laughs> it sounds so exciting though. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So, you know, we want to jump straight to the solution, but yeah, once you've, you've got, um, an idea of the problem, move on to that solution and then really start to just get it out, build that solution as fast as you really can, right? And that's where we go back and the MVP, you know, is the first thing we try to build that kind of the atomic unit of the product, the core kind of like product. We try and build that as fast as we can uh, in a really lean manner. And we get that in the hands of users as quick as we can, because all that kind of Previous research is great. It's giving you signals because you can test, as we know, we can test desirability in a million different ways. There's a bunch of ways we can do it with smoke tests. But again, like you're just getting signals, right? And what you're trying to do is get more um, stronger evidence to suggest this person actually uh, is willing to use your product, likes your product, is willing to potentially pay for it. So that's why we want to get something in front of people as quick as possible. And again, just with the validation side of things, just ensuring this in the surface area of the product, there's multiple feedback loops. Some founders tend to launch a product and they don't have any feedback loops in place. And what I mean by that is they're basically sitting in their car with the headlights off, driving in the dark. Like they have no idea what's going on. So you can't quantify success when you're in the dark. You, you need to be able to have a feedback loop to understand whether you're doing you know, good or doing bad, what needs fixed, what needs improved. You kind of touched on like the evidence that, that founders can look for. Like, what sort of signs are of a good kind of product market fit? Are there any things that, that founders should be looking for to give them the confidence they're on, you know, they're on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. Like product market fit is one that I think if you ask 10 different founders, you get 10 different results. You also Google this online and just see the different approaches with what we call PMF. So there's a bunch of methodologies in place and frameworks in order to, to try and quantify PMF. I, I think I, I'll give you a few of the ones that I, I would generally use to, to measure. And I think there, there was definitely, there is loads more. So I think this is probably quite a contentious subject here that could be challenged. The, the really obvious one, the one that you hear all the time, and I think it was Sean Ellis who kind of came up with this, but it was the NPS score. And it was a simple question that you'd ask uh, your customers. Typically after they've 
kind of complete maybe like a core action within your product so you'd have that prompt that kind of feedback loop in place and you basically be asking them you know how disappointed would you be if you could no longer use this product and then you've got you know at the top very disappointed disappointed somewhat disappointed not disappointed at all and they're looking for usually 40 percent and above to have answered very disappointed then i would also say a good signal is you're getting more customers with less effort so you're spending less to acquire customers and at that point like I think you're getting more like referrals at that point. It's a kind of clear sign that you're getting more kind of like direct referrals coming to your product. You've got a good understanding of the acquisition channels. You know, you're not paying to acquire people and then you've got a lower lifetime value of that customer. So essentially you're just kind of spending money to acquire them. Long-term retention is definitely, I'd say probably one of the most fundamental ones. Um, and it really depends on the type of product, your kind of pricing plan model, if it's kind of like, you know, weekly, monthly, yearly subscription plans, but you're looking for, yeah, long-term retention, are customers actually sticking around? You're looking for that kind of like in a diagram, the, the kind of flattening of the retention curve, and it remains a kind of constant. And that's a really healthy sign. And obviously, you know, coupled with that as well is the the level of churn and the kind of trying to maintain a kind of healthy level of churn. I think this is a tricky one because in the early stage, and again, it really depends on, on your kind of pricing models. I've worked in startups where they've got a very generous free plan and then it goes into a pay plans, you know, thereafter. You kind of need to like decouple, you need to do a bit of cohort analysis really to try and find that kind of tension curve in there because I think the, the free plans can create a lot of noise in the data set to be able to understand that. So it's just, yeah, what, what one to, to notice. I think strong sentiments, another a great measurement as well that you get with the with product market fit, like you're literally getting emails. People are sending you emails saying like they, they love the product um, and they're giving you a bit of feedback there as well. Right. It's not all going to be like, this is amazing, but they they're leading with fantastic product, but could I ask for X, Y, and Z, right? Someone has taken the time to pull up their email, to, you know, write out something, to find that email address and to write something to you. They're clearly passionate about the product. They want to see it stick around. And again, you can see in social media, there's a great company I'm looking at just now, right? As a prime example, and this is for anyone to be able to check out and it's Arc Internet and they're doing a fantastic, you can see that sentiment online. They just did a big launch, literally like two or three hours ago on Twitter. You look in the comments, you just see like the excitement of people. You see how many people like liked and retweeted that, that particular feature. They're, I guarantee by tomorrow, there'll be newsletters talking about it and all these sort of things. Like it's kind of got that virality of like everything they're pushing, people are just like shouting for the rooftops. Really, really good sign of, of PMF. Last two, these are probably less so, but I, I just think they're great to chat about. The things are breaking, right? Like you're, you've got processes in place within your startup and they're just starting to break. You're struggling to hire enough people to keep up with demand, right? These are like, that's a, I would say a leading indicator of PMF. Like, you know, you can't deal with the load of people coming through, the APIs getting an absolute hammering, all these sort of things. And then lastly, maybe this is just one off the top of my head. Instead of you going looking for investment, investors start knocking at your door. 
So instead of camping it out at theirs, they're literally turning up at yours. So that's maybe another healthy sign. But again, these aren't all kind of exclusive to each other. You know, there could just be one or two of these would provide good signs. The interesting things there, because I mean, in, in the journey we're on at the moment with Rocky, we're trying to look, you know, look at those signs. And there's a couple of those ones that appear early on and you're like, okay, there's people asking for features. There's like complimentary stuff that we're seeing. But it feels so much of this as a journey is the longer you go on, different things start to happen at different times where it's like, oh, now we're getting a bit of traction with the audience. And that's because of the marketing push as well. Like there's more people talking about it on social. We're getting more emails and inbound inquiries. But there's still a huge journey ahead as well. Like, you know, how do you manage churn? How do you manage like the kind of feature adding and everything that goes along with it and picking the right things at the right time? I think the analogy I was kind of thinking of as you were saying those things, it feels like you were at a mixing desk, but you're not quite uh, like Tiesto just yet. You're sort of like, I don't know, I'm still like Bob from down the pub and I'm, I'm kind of doing my best, but um, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to mix as best you can, but you, you know, trying to figure out what the best of those quant and qual really is. I, I found that fascinating what you're saying about kind of those feedback loops as well and how you use qualitative to sometimes like validate the quant side of things. Is, is that right? Kind of those, the, those sort of fluffy feel good things that you might hear, like how much importance do you give to those bits and pieces as well? Oh, that's it. I mean, you, we could sit and look at dashboards all day and you can obviously in, interpret what they're telling you, but you've got to layer on some, some qualitative data into that and see if there is any kind of patterns, you know, emerging between the two. You can see startups are, you know, more comfortable on the uh, qualitative side. And then there's other startups who, you know, they could hide behind a dashboard all day and make decisions. I think you've got to have a healthy balance of both. So Sam, like we're going to do a slight about turn here. I'd love to talk about your experiences with content because like what really struck me is like, I've been a subscriber to the Creator Club, which is your, your Substack newsletter now for, I think I've only been on it for about five or six months. And it's really helped with my personal journey, just seeing what's out there, the different technologies. And I love the kind of experiments that you do as well. And you've built that to quite a good following now. I think it's about 7,000 people who have signed up for it. So Tell us all about it. How did it get started? What was the inspiration and what's next? Yeah, well, thanks for subscribing. That's fantastic. It was really, again, a passion project. I've been running probably newsletters for God knows how long, maybe maybe a decade, all different types of newsletters. And I think, you know, when I sold nocode.tech, that had quite a big newsletter following, about a lot of subscribers. It was probably around about maybe like, I don't know, 10, 11,000 at that, at that time. And at that point, I had no newsletter and I was still reading content. I was still finding really cool products. I just wanted to shout from the rooftops and tell other people about just weird stuff online that I thought others would find interesting. And I'd be like sending that to friends, colleagues, you know, in Slack or in WhatsApp. And it just kind of dawned on me, like, you know, why don't I just actually kind of package this up nicely, stick in an email? And if there is other, you know, nerds like me out there that find this stuff interesting, then we'll find out. This isn't any, it's not any more taxing for me to do so. You know, like I, I still have quite a, a rigorous regime of, of reading, like every single night. I use like Stoop, which is like a really nice RSS feed. And I really try and get to the inbox zero. Like I've got all my newsletters go 
go through that RSS. So I'd kind of treat that as like inbox zero. I want to read through all my favorite newsletters and I find little tidbits out there that I enjoy. Then I've used like Zapier and Pocket. So if I add a label like newsletter, when I save it, it will then go to Airtable and I'll add it to this big repository. And then from there, I kind of go through that repository and kind of select the, the ones I like. So it's kind of like a bit of a routine that's kind of been built. It also acts as like a great forcing function just to stay curious and learn. You know, as a PM, you've got to be on the ball of the latest trends and what's happening. This is a great forcing function to do so. You've got to show up every single month. And I think it was funny when you got, you know, your first 15, 30, you know, subscribers, you're like, oh, this is great. You know, someone's reading. And, but again, you kind of just wrote without much care. And then it started to creep up into 500, a thousand. Then I'm starting to be really critical about what I'm writing. You know, like I'm sitting there going, oh my God, this is, this is terrible. Like, would, would they find this interesting? Like, are they as strange as I am? What, like, I find that funny, but maybe they won't. And then it just be, you become so self-critical. Like that number goes up and your confidence is decreasing simultaneously. So it, I had to kind of get out that bit of a funk and not like worry too much. And then people start reaching out to you and they want to sponsor it. The stress and anxiety just continually increases at this point, right? Because uh, you've set a deadline and I didn't really care much about deadlines before. The whole point of the newsletter was like, if I've got something to say, I'll share it. If I've really, if I've been on holiday and I've had my feet up for the last two weeks, I've got nothing to say. I'm not going to scramble content together just to send it out to meet that deadline. But now I've got to. So I've got to really stick to that kind of regime of reading and then put it together. I think just on the very last point, actually, is another thing I guess that did inspire me was having worked with a lot of founders, they would tend to have like a product or an idea. And this doesn't necessarily need to be like they're building a startup could just be like a small little product that you built but unfortunately they never had they don't have an audience and and I didn't at the time either so you come up with this idea and then you chuck it out and to your five twitter followers and it's like crickets and you've not got distribution and I thought well I don't have necessarily something right now but I know for a fact that like I'm going to be launching things in the future coming up with other ideas so why not build the audience now? And I've seen a few people do that in the past mm-hmm. where it just started as a newsletter. They weren't trying to sell anything to anybody. And eventually they just tastefully layered in maybe some of their own products because they built that audience. And you ultimately want to try and get to, I was just reading it the other day, you know, Kevin Kelly's A Thousand True Fans. Like if no one's read that, You've got to check that blog post out. It's just like a, a great idea of having just a thousand true fans. And it seems so achievable as well, which is great. You know, at that point, maybe you can monetize the newsletter and it could actually bring, you know, a healthy amount of revenue. And then lastly, I'm actually pretty badly dyslexic. And that was like a massive thing that stopped me from writing. I was just terrible at spelling. So managing, like just being, if you can imagine, right, you barely know how to spell and you're going to share your writing online with the whole entire world. Like that was just like, you know, crippling. So I think again, when I, when I started to do that for like no code.tech and started producing it, you realize no one cares. 
Like as, as long as the content, like the value of the content is great. I very rarely got someone emailing me back, you know, coming to me and actually saying, you know, this should be like that or it never happened. It's a blend of all those things. Yeah. I mean, the, the newsletter is brilliant and it's clearly doing very well. And, and it's a competitive kind of space too. I'm just wondering, you know, in terms of, you know, how you try and stand out, get attention, is there anything that you do there or is it just about kind of relying on the quality of the content and the reputation that you've you've built up yeah it's a great it's a great question i think i've always looked at it where i kind of write based on my interests and like not for algorithms you see like a lot of writers are just they're building their content around the algorithm you can see it straight away right when they're trying to do it for instance a lot of like substack writers They've obviously got their, their newsletter followers, but it actually indexes extremely well uh, on Google. So you can actually see that quite quite a change in people's writing style because they're also looking for SEO optimization in the newsletter because it will publish to people's inboxes, but also index on the web. And I, I, there's nothing worse than reading something that someone has put together and you know, you can see straight through it. They don't have a clue what they're talking about, but it seems like a cool, relevant thing. And they've just consumed it, consumed other content and reworded a bit and spat it back out. Like you can tell the passion, you can tell if someone's interested in something, you can see that in their reading. Like that's the stuff that, that, that I read. Like you get the kind of big faceless like media companies that will write about something. You don't even see the author anymore who even wrote it. And I just don't find that content interesting. I want to read from the specialist. The person's actually done it. It's not just, you know, talking about it. And so I think just the authenticity is probably something that I find interesting. And then just the tone of voice as well. You know, you read stuff like Packy McCormack's, uh, you know, Not Boring newsletter uh, is one great example. Really relaxed writing style, but pretty complex stuff he's talking about. That stuff's so easy to digest. It's interesting. It's got his personality stamped all over it. It's not gone through like 12 editors before it's, you know, publish is being hit. He's written it. He's just clicked publish and walked away. I love that. Like, <clears throat> Sam, you're fully allowed in the club. You're a purist. <laughs> it's like, I think the word we gravitate to is always around authenticity. And, and, and there is always an audience, like no matter how much of a niche that, particular topic you might work in is like don't let the kind of the vanity metrics of like have I got enough reach have I got enough engagement on some of this because someone's watching someone's engaging and like I think what you've done with your own newsletter is a really good testament to that the final point on that when you're when you're kind of making that content because I've noticed a couple of little tricks that you do actually how do you know you're creating good stuff that your audience is enjoying and how do you kind of help use that data to plan ahead as well yeah, so the analytics, particularly in the newsletter, I mean, they're not they're not the best, but what it does allow you to understand, there's obviously the kind of core ones that we that we all use, like right? we've got the open rate, we've got the click through rate, right? Pretty straightforward. We can understand usually what like how's the open rate? It's probably nine times out of ten because of the subject title. So it's just trying to like optimize and play with that. Then I'm really trying to find out because I share a lot of different content in the newsletter each month and I can then see like what sort of content has been clicked on so maybe every few months 
I would just take a CSV export, drop that into a spreadsheet and then start kind of categorizing like some of the, the kind of maybe top 10 clicks of, of each month, put them into like quite distinct buckets and then see the kind of like pattern overlay of, all oh, right, that sort of content's getting like clicked a lot. And, and you can see that it's not kind of like a very kind of, I am surprised what I'm trying to say is like month on month, because you do look at things like I'm very aware of the fact that AI is all anyone talks about right now. And the last two episodes I've done are issues that I've published. There's a lot of mention of AI, but I'm sucked into that hype cycle. And I actually think there's some really cool things to share. But then again, go back to what I said, like, I don't want to be one of those thread boys on like on Twitter. I'm constantly just trying to force AI content down your throat, right? So I'm keeping an eye, particularly in the next few issues, just to see, you know, like, are people actually clicking on this? Do they find that interesting? Are they absolutely mm -hmm. sick of it? And, and they do want to get, you know, back to some of the basics of what I've shared in the past. So keeping an eye on that is definitely one of the most important fact factors for me. I've also got the polls as well. That's actually a new feature because I've only moved to Substack, I think, since January's issue. Before that, as a review, but Elon decided to shut that down from Twitter. So I, I kind of like forcefully got kind of pushed towards Substack and it, it provides the polling feature, which has actually been really good. Like you basically stick some polls out every single issue. And I'm just trying to understand a little bit more about my audience, like who they are, what they're interested in, what they want more of. I used to do like a survey. I hate surveys. You both probably hate surveys. Like, why would you complete a survey? People did it, which is incredible. Like, I, I really appreciate it. But I know, like, if I see another type form, you know, I'm just going to throw myself out the window. Like, I can't stand the thing. So... <laughs> So just a simple poll. All you have to do is move the mouse, click on exactly what option you're interested in, and, and that, that's it. And they've worked extremely well. That's allowed me to kind of really kind of orientate the, the content around that. And then social media shares, maybe. There's been once or twice where content's done quite well. But yeah, that's that's pretty much how I measure it. I think you've probably already given us loads of tips on, you know, how to <laughs> how to create great content, and obviously, seven thousand subscribers is testament to to that. But if you were going to kind of give a couple more tips to people, content creators looking to kind of grow their their audience, you know, have you got any that you can you can share with us? I would say what's worked actually recently quite well for me is uh, cross promotion, and again, this is like nothing new. People have been doing this. Bloggers have been doing this for, for decades. It's now quite prevalent in newsletters. So I'll essentially find another newsletter with a similar like audience, maybe a similar like size, but to be honest, it doesn't really matter as long as actually I generally think they've got good content. And you just reach out to that, that creator, that writer, and then you do a bit of a cross promotion and mention their newsletter, they mention yours, and you get that kind of nice cross pollination of subscribers. So that, that's worked really well. Another one actually, again, and I'm not a rep for Substack and it doesn't, you know, there's a lot of improvements to be done to it, but <laughs> one, one, one cool feature they've got now is they've got like a, a recommendation screen that pops up. So if I subscribe to Matt's newsletter, it will pop up with other newsletters that are similar to Matt's or ones that he's recommended himself personally. 
I've actually got a load of a, a ton of growth actually through that recommendation side of of Substack that's worked actually extremely well. So I've been taking that a little bit more seriously. You know, look at some of the other publications, maybe a bit bigger of an audience, start recommending them. They can track on their side how many people they're getting from me, and hopefully they they scratch my back as well at some point. That's the tactic. Again, just going back to what I mentioned before is just measuring what's working well and what's not. Like, that's such an important thing. I speak about it in product, you know, day to day, but in a newsletter as well, like, you know, tailor it. I, I'd say for me, because it's a personal newsletter, like I take it with a, a pinch of salt. If there's something there that people are requesting for that I have no interest in or no idea about, I'm not going to write about it. I've got a bit maybe of a tougher stance on that side of things. But if it's something I generally am passionate about, people want more of it, then yeah, hell yeah, I'm going to write more about it. That's that's totally fine. I think just make it easy to read as well. Like you'd be surprised like how many bad newsletters are out there. Just terrible font sizes, <laughs> awful line spacing, and they've just crammed it with way too much writing. They've not broken it up. Horrible color palette. Just really keep it nice and clean and simple. Just one last tactic I'd say it's worked for me, this is obviously quite specific to content curation, where I'm actually finding content that, that people have created and then I put it into my newsletter. I find every single Twitter handle and most like nine times out of 10, all the products, all the links and all the kind of general like writing content, I can find the creators of them and I'll get the Twitter handle. And then when I say that the issue has is just been published, I'll tag in each of those folk in the hope that maybe just one of them has got, you know, mm -hmm. quite a, a reasonable following will then kind of reshare that and then hopefully drive some traffic towards a newsletter. So that's all worked out quite nicely. Awesome. Love that. I think we're going to have a little pause now for some gratuitous advertising. And then when we come back, we'll get to Matt's bangers and an example of great content. Right. Thank you. Thank you for coming in. Can you say your name into the recorder for me, please, sir? Yeah, hi. Um, I'm, I'm Jeff. I'm an SEO analyst at Agency. And I, 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 I was there for nine months. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. I, I really appreciate how difficult this is for you. And I admire your bravery in talking to us. Can you describe the conditions that they put you through? Yes, yeah, yeah. I was tasked with optimizing clients' content on a monthly basis. I, I did this for two days a week, every single month. Okay, Jeff, thank you. Um, can you tell us a little bit more? Yes, uh, so I, I had to log into these platforms, all of these platforms. There was Search Console, there was GA4, there was Hrefs, sometimes SEMrush, sometimes Keyword Anywhere and then put all of this data into a separate spreadsheet. It took me ages. Okay, Jeff, thank you so much. And, and then what happened? What did you do with that data? What did I do? I looked at it, and I looked at it, and I guessed what was working. None of it made any sense. They're just numbers. I have no idea what the reader actually enjoyed. 
And then, and then what's even worse is then I adjusted the content. I optimized it. A new paragraph here or a new keyword there. And I had no idea, none, if it made it any of it any better or if it helped the reader at all. I just did it. And then, then, then the next month I did it again and again and again. I had no insight. I had no insight. Does this sound familiar? Well, there's a better way. Use Rocky to take the guesswork out of content performance by combining feedback from your readers along with the traditional measures of success from those other platforms. You can make the process four times quicker and optimize your content with real insights. Visit rocky.io to find out more. So now is the time of the show to go through Matt's bangers. And that's where we talk about a piece of content that our guest loves and we find out a little bit of why they love it so much as well. So Sam, over to you. What have you what have you brought to us today for, for Matt's bangers? Ah, this is this was a tough one. There was there's quite a few that I like. In the end, I ended up going for maybe an obvious pick, but we'll soon find out. First round capital, uh, kind of prominent VC, actually have an incredible blog. And the, the reason I've selected them in particular is, is long form content when it needs to be long form, right? And there's a big difference there. It's not full of fluff, which a ton of content has. This is all very concise. It's quite like big subjects, quite deep, sometimes quite complex, but they've been written by actual experts. And they're front and center as well. So you know exactly who it is, their background. Again, just the UI, like fantastic reading experience. I love these little subtle things like the progress bar as you kind of scroll down, you can see, you know, how much you've read. They've got a really nice kind of like sticky navigation. It sits in the kind of the left-hand corner. You can see the kind of table of contents and it stays there as you scroll down. So you can kind of snap and anchor to a section whenever you like. There's zero advertising on it, which is amazing. So full screen real estate to read in and not trying to chuck something in front of you. Just in general, like the value creation of each piece that they've, they've written, bang for buck is amazing. That sounds great, actually. And for every Matt's banger, as we know, there must be a sausage of death. So a quick reminder of where sausage of death comes from. It's Danish slang for something that's really boring. So Doden's Pulsar is the Danish. Sausage of Death is the English, and that's our nice, uplifting way of finishing the show by awarding an interminably dull piece of content that Doden's Pulsar title. So, Sam, do you have an SOD for us today? Indeed, I do. It's general business insider content. I can't stand it. It's full of clickbait titles, it's got zero value creation, no substance, full of fluff loads of pop-up and ads the worst mobile experience you can imagine it could be written by anybody i'm sure they're all clones there as far as i'm aware in a factory <laughs> i don't know any of the names but they've all got the same writing style it could be any any one of them that is writing it so yeah sorry if i'm on the rights there but yeah it's definitely a banger of death is that what we call it <laughs> 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 it's a banger of a sausage of death for sure that's um no, that's perfect though it's it's the clickbait yeah. nonsense that we want to get rid of and, and anything that's on local newspaper websites is just seemingly the worst experience known to man at this point yeah thank you sam for that example so let's wrap this sausage up get it packed and onto the shelves 
In future shows, we're going to be dissecting what truly great content looks like with a number of guest experts and, and getting more incredible insights from people like Sam. So if you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you and any of your contributions that you might have for Matt's bangers or conversely, the infamous sausage of death. And as always, we value your feedback. You can get in touch with us by messaging our Twitter handle, which is Rocky underscore IO, visiting us on LinkedIn or coming through to our website, which is Rocky.io. So thanks again. Thanks for listening. And thank you very much to Sam for joining us this week. We'll see you again soon.